Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey folks, before we start, we wanted to check in about the language in the realness. You're going to hear some offensive words, especially F-bombs and N-bombs. Our team talked a lot about how to handle this, and in the end, we've struck a balance between recognizing how loaded and offensive that language is and telling Prodigy's story the way he told it. Okay, here's our show. Can't let you see my secret hiding place, okay? Out in Hempstead, Long Island, just a few minutes away from where Prodigy grew up, is the house of this guy named Derek Parker. This is a safe. You can't penetrate this safe to get into it. If you get into it, I'm going to take it back to the manufacturer. Right by his front door is a safe, and it's like a big one, like the size of your high school locker. Okay, I have to tell you, like, this is like a straight up a safe, like, uh, you see in like a movie. Is it? Yeah, where it's like he's covered it up with a garbage bag. I guess it's to make it look less obvious. Yeah, I guess you could say that. For years, Derek was a detective with the NYPD. He likes to call himself the hip-hop cop. He's basically a cop who was also a hip-hop fan, which meant that he became the in-house expert on rap music. All right. Oh, my God. That's, that's Diddy. Yeah. You got everyone. He's a lot of rappers. Derek still does security for hip-hop acts. It explains why this safe is stuffed with mugshots, mugshots of rappers. He painstakingly mapped out who was connected with who, Mob Deep's crew included. He used to be with the Mob Boys back then. Derek pulls out a three-ring binder, points to a rapper named Tragedy. Tragedy. See? These guys all ran in Queens. They were like Queens crew guys. Oh, they were in Queens? Yeah, Queens, great, Queens rich guy. Murder unit people, these are different people. While Derek was with the New York Police Department, he helped start something called the Rap Intelligence Unit. Some of the rap artists were perpetrators in crimes, and some of them were victims. And the police department had to come up with a uh, plan to kind of combat the violence in the rap music industry. That's why I fit in, because they called me up and the commissioners want me to sit down and to explain to them what was going on, especially with this East Coast, West Coast rift. And I made my own hours. Derek would just hang out in front of clubs on the weekend, just waiting. I would sit out in my car with my camera or my video camera or, you know, just watch with my binoculars (laughs) and watch people going in and people going out. See who runs with who, who I know, who I don't know. You know, car pl- license plate numbers of cars that they leave in. We would watch everything. I'd heard this rumor about Mob Deep that I wanted to talk to Derek about. Is it true that, um, because a bunch of people have said this to me, that they were banned from performing in New York City for a certain amount of time just because of the violence? Mob Deep was. I mean, what happens is the police department could put a stranglehold in your business. He says it's not that the NYPD could actually ban rappers from performing. But the police department could strangle your money because they'll tell the venue, if you bring this act in here, we're going to come down on your venue. And how do we do that? We'll put up roadblocks, a DWI checkpoint. We'll start checking people for open containers. We're not going to tell you that you can't bring the artists in. We're suggesting you don't. And we know when you suggest that, it's like almost telling them don't do it. In our last episode, we told you the story of that probation violation. It brought Prodigy to court right as Tupac and Biggie were killed. Around that same time, the NYPD started to keep track of rappers in a whole new way. They cracked down at concerts. They put cameras in front of a hip-hop radio station. They kept tabs on who ran with whom. And all this surveillance, 
Eventually, it caught up with Prodigy. He'd carried guns for years, always said it was for his own protection. But in 2006, he was arrested for weapons possession again. He'd beaten this kind of thing in the past, but not this time. This time, Prodigy was headed upstate for three and a half years. A lot of folks we talked to said that when he came out, he was really different. Even Prodigy said getting locked up changed him for the better, made him healthier. So in this episode, we're going to get inside the case that sent him to prison and talk about why he came out a different man. I'm Mary Harris. And I'm Christopher Johnson. This is The Realness. That might have been like the best thing that happened to me, getting locked up. Cause I was um, acting real young-minded and doing foolish shit, you know what I mean? Um, the music raised us. And when I got locked up, I, I think it, saved, it helped save my life because I was going in the wrong direction. And it just made me focus and it made me, you know, get back to what I was supposed to be doing. You know what I'm saying? In life, period, with music, with personal shit, with, you know, just everything. Here's how Prodigy wound up going to prison. October 26, 2006. It was Alchemist's birthday. The Alchemist is a producer who'd worked with Mob Deep. He's also one of Prodigy's close friends. And they're celebrating... With a case of Heinekens, a case of Coronas, and a lot of Kush. Alchemist, Prodigy, and a bunch of their dudes. Twin was pushing to go out, but Alchemist and I wanted to stay in the apartment and make music. Come on, yo. It's Alchemist's birthday, Twin said. Let's go out. Eventually, they all pile into Prodigy's bulletproof Chevy SUV, and they start going from club to club to club. And while they're doing the circuit, Prodigy's got a small 22 caliber pistol in his car. So then around 2 a.m., they circle back to Alchemist's house. Alchemist and I stopped at a red light directly across the street from his building on 30th Street and 9th Avenue. And while they were waiting for the light to change, Prodigy spotted a parking spot across the street. Which was like winning a lotto in Manhattan. So when the light turned green, I made an illegal U-turn up 9th Avenue and backed into the spot. Just as I was about to parallel park, a yellow cab with a 6-watt tag at the top and a red flashing police light on the dashboard pulled in front of my truck. Damn. The cops get out of their car, walk up to Prodigy's truck, and pull everyone out. Do you have any weapons on you or in the car? The cop asked. No, I replied. I knew I was going to get locked up. Twin says he was always trying to convince Prodigy to just leave the guns behind. Before we left, we told P he had two guns. We're like, leave one of them. You know what I mean? So he left one, he would've got charged with two guns. But why did he bring the guns? P used to have a gun every, every day. Every day. I don't know why. We had no beef. Give me the gun, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, let me hold it, son, I'm good, we good. We had no drama, nothing. I don't know why. He just wanted to keep a gun on him. Was he scared? I don't know why. We used to, like how we sitting down? Me and Alchemist are talking, we don't need no gun. Why you got the gun? We. And what would he say? 
Nah, you know, son, I gotta make sure we good. They threw Alchemist and me in the yellow cab and brought us to the Midtown South Precinct on 35th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue, locking us in separate holding cells for the long hours of waiting. Yo, Alchemist! I yelled through the cell bars after about an hour. Happy birthday! Prodigy was charged with criminal possession of a weapon. And by this point, he had two kids, a boy who he'd named Tashaka, which is a version of his own childhood nickname, and a daughter, Fatasia. They were still in grade school, so Prodigy did not want to do a lot of time. So he took a plea deal and got three and a half years. And as this case wound down, one day Prodigy's headed to the courthouse, and he runs into that hip-hop cop, Derek Parker. You said you ran into Prodigy in court. What, what happened? Tell me about that. Well, you know what? He was sick, and uh, he had just gotten out of a court case, and I saw him outside. And I told him, basically, I said, Prodigy, it wasn't personal where you thought that the police department had a personal vendetta against you. It was against the violence that was associated with you and some of the people that you ran with. And most rappers at that time, when you come up in the streets, you bring your boys with you. You bring your community with you because you represent But the problem is, everything else comes with it. The drug dealers, the con men, everybody comes part and parcel. So that's a problem. And I said to him, it's not personal against you, Prodigy, but it's just against some of the people that you were with. He was worried about going to prison and worried about jail, you know, especially with his condition. Sickle cell. It was always there, just below the surface. Prodigy lived with this idea that he was always one crisis away from his body totally betraying him. He knew that being sick in prison could be especially dangerous. Hello? Hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? Years after Prodigy got out of prison, he worked on a book with hip-hop journalist Kathy Yandley. When I realized I had to go to jail for three years, in my mind, I was like, all right, I'm going to jail from the hospital so I can get my fucking medication every day. Prodigy told Kathy that as he sat there in that courtroom and he was waiting to be taken to prison, he was worried about his sickle cell. I had, uh, you know, my experiences when I was young being locked up, I had got sick a few times. Mm-hmm. I, was in, I got locked up in Long Island, Nassau County. I was in the county for a couple of weeks. That was about as long as I did in jail, you know what I mean? Prodigy told this story about being locked up when he was younger and getting sick. I had got sick because it was mad cold. And then, you know, I had the orange jumpsuit on. It's like wintertime. It's freezing in the fucking jail. They got the AC bumping in there. So I had got sick. My sickle cells started acting up. And, um, you know, I had told the CEO, like, yo, I got to go to the hospital. My sickle cell acting up. I need to go to the hospital. And they, they didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. They didn't give a fuck. Was like, gave me some ibuprofen, Tylenol or whatever. It was just like, yeah. So the shit just like progressively got worse to the point where I couldn't even move. And I'm fucking crying. I'm in mad pain and shit. So that's that's when they was like, all right, this kid got to go to the hospital. So now it's setting in for Prodigy. He's facing hard time and he's getting worried. In our last episode, we told you how he'd stopped showing up to court for violating his probation. So he knew one way to get the court's attention was to get hospitalized. While I was going to trial, I would purposely pretend like I was sick, go to the hospital, 
And then when the trial date come up, I would make sure I was admitted in the hospital on that day, so I missed the trial date. Prodigy refused to show up to his own sentencing. He missed five court appearances. And so finally the judge was like, nah, this motherfucker better show up to court. This next time or else we're gonna do whatever. I went to court in a wheelchair. I didn't even need this shit. Just so I could get my medication when they sentenced me. You know what I'm saying? I had the doctors at the hospital write a letter saying that he needs pain medication twice a day, boom, boom, he has severe sickle cell, whatever. So when the judge sentenced me, that that part was in my paperwork. So that day when I got sentenced and went to jail, they took me straight to Rikers Island to the infirmary. This strategy worked. While he was incarcerated, Prodigy's lawyer made sure he got his morphine, two 30-milligram tablets each day. But even with all that, look, Prodigy was going to prison, where the healthcare system just isn't set up to deal with a chronic condition like sickle cell. If you're just, like, complaining that you got pain or you're sick, you ain't gonna do shit. At Rikers, it was just like a big dome. There wasn't no cells. It was just a whole, it was like 40 beds. And everybody's all next to each other. After a month in the Rikers Island jail, Prodigy told Kathy Anderley that he got on a bus with dozens of other inmates. They were all about to enter the state prison system. I was handcuffed with like 100 different inmates. We was all shackled together. They gradually, one by one, realized that they're handcuffed to a rap star. All the inmates on the bus was all talking to me. They mm-hmm. all, like knew who I was. It was like a lot of bloods, a lot of gang motherfuckers and shit. Mm-hmm. They was just like, oh, Prodigy, oh, shit. I'm locked up with Prodigy, you know what I'm saying? They started giving Prodigy little bits of advice on how to survive life behind bars. So they was like, yo, it's your first time going up north? I'm like, yeah. So they was like explaining to me everything, how the process and everything. They was like, yo, try to get a job in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. We should do this, do that, the third, get ready for these motherfuckers. They're going to make you shave your head and take a cold-ass shower once we get to downstate. So it was just like giving me the rundown. But Prodigy wasn't a normal inmate. So when I got up north, um, you know, they took me They took me on the side. They was like, yo, you ain't got to go through that shit everybody else going through. It was like, we're going to take you this way. The other inmates, they all had, it was like 40, 50 inmates. They all had to strip butt naked and like, get screamed on and look at the wall and all kind of weird shit, but I ain't had to do none of that shit. And the prison system had to decide what to do with an inmate who has sickle cell anemia. Yeah, I was in isolation room. Oh, why? Because that's, you know, they didn't know where to put me. You know what I mean? So what um what did that look like? It was just a room with big-ass, like, bulletproof window and, like, a door with bulletproof glass. And then, like, behind... Behind the bed, it was like another window of bulletproof glass where you could see outside into the yard. And were you allowed to leave it? Nah. He spent his first few months being bounced from prison to prison. And most of that time, he was confined to solitary hospital rooms where his only company was the cleanup crew. So one time they slipped me a bunch of weed and some cigarettes under the door. And, uh... How were you even able to smoke it? Couldn't they smell it? Well... I was in the isolation room, so it was like one small-ass room. So I was scared to smoke it. I actually flushed that shit down the toilet. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was shook. I was like, nah, I ain't getting caught smoking this shit in here. <laughs> Prodigy eventually got out of those isolation rooms. He was moved to Mid-State Correctional Facility in Marcy, New York, where he was put in protective custody with other inmates. Yeah, it was protective custody. And basically what that meant is we were escorted whenever we went anywhere, so we weren't attacked. Gregory Kismarek is a former police chief. He was caught selling cocaine, and he was locked up alongside Prodigy. There was a lot of characters on our unit. You know, there was Prodigy, and, you know, Dennis Kozlowski was on our tier. This guy Gregory's talking about, Dennis Kozlowski. He was one of a slew of businessmen arrested in the early 2000s for financial trouble. Here's how decadent this guy was. He threw a $2 million birthday party for his wife. It had an ice sculpture of Michelangelo's David, and that ice sculpture peed vodka. So this unit, it was kind of a ragtag bunch. There were some people that had sex crimes and, you know, other law enforcement and, you know, uh, there was a... a Such former, a weird uh, mix. A it's, or, it's like sex crimes, famous people, rich people, former law enforcement. Yeah. It's just a funny mix. Oh, it sure is. It's also informants because if somebody was a rat, they were in trouble. From the outside, it sort of looks like Prodigy had it good in prison. People knew who he was. They looked out for him. But it was still prison. And the common phrase is, if you don't like it, don't go to jail. In protective custody, a doctor came by once a week. But inmates told us it was actually harder to get medical attention in this unit than it was in the general population. Gregory was getting monthly blood work for his cancer. But I, I with six months to go, I refused all medical attention. It was that bad. Really? And just said, just said I'll, I'll, I'll get through six months. It was really atrocious. Gregory used to be a nurse, so he knows a little bit about what good medical care looks like. I was um, told that I could get an annual teeth cleaning, and I went to the dental clinic. I don't know if this is, you know, you, you know as an inmate, you have no way of knowing if it's policy or just somebody's attitude. But when I went, got in the chair to have my teeth cleaned, uh, the woman had her back to me, and she was very nice and everything, but she said, which eight teeth would you like cleaned? You got to select the eight? The eight, the number eight. I, sa- I said, "What? I don't get what you mean. She goes, well, that's the average number of teeth inmates have here, so that's what we're authorized to clean. And she said, you have a full mouth. I'd suggest you get the I said, well, how do I pick? And she said, I would suggest you do your lower teeth because that's where there's the most tartar. That's crazy. No, I... Yeah, but I, and again, I have no way of knowing if that's standard practice, if that's this person's jollies. You, you, know, you know, you have no way of, of knowing any of that stuff. Prison officials told us this wasn't their policy. Like Gregory says, he could have just been treated by one especially sadistic person. And we can't know what Prodigy's medical care looked like while he was in prison either. But we do know that getting locked up forced Prodigy to grapple with who he'd been on the outside before he went to prison. I was just out of control, man. Smoking mad weed, just drinking heavily. Like, I, was, I already learned that shit fucks up my sickle cell when I do that. But I was so angry and just wanting to hurt somebody. Just always, like, trigger finger itchy. Like, ready to show a nigga, like, don't play with me. Like, I'm, I'm just trying, I'm going about my business, doing my music. I'm making my money. Don't come over here playing with my life. You know what I'm saying? Because you're going to find out. So this is my mentality every day. And that's just started to rot away in my spirit, my brain. Everything was just like, ugh, it felt disgusting. And I didn't realize 
how disgusting it was until I, I got caught with the gun in my car and got locked up. And I just started thinking about everything. Like, damn. Prodigy decided to use his time in prison to focus his mind, get himself straight. You know, just being locked up, it made me like, all right, I want to see what happens if I'm on some military discipline shit. Straight water every day, green vegetables. I wanted to see the outcome of that. So I, I did it. He convinced his family to start sending him 30 pounds of canned vegetables in the mail. The packages came every month, and at least it was a better diet than what prison food gave him. You know what I mean? Because of doing that, I was able to work out. Like, you know, they tell doctors told me all my life, I can't work out. I can't do any uh, physical contact or, or strenuous exercise because it triggers your sickle cell. And it's true. Like, certain things I do, like, if, my, if I'm running around too much and my heart rate start going too fast, I get too hyped, my adrenaline start pumping, it can trigger my sickle cell. The thing with sickle cell and exercise is that exercise actually decreases the amount of oxygen that's getting to your muscles. It's a kind of stress. But that kind of stress is really hard because sickle cell patients just don't have any oxygen in their blood to spare. And so it can trigger you into a full-on pain crisis. So while he was at Midstate, P developed a system. Slow, steady workouts, lots of push-ups. He'd give himself tablets of morphine if he needed them. And he found if he didn't rush, he could be okay. And it felt great. It felt great. I was like, wow, this is ill. And soon enough... His friends started noticing he was different. Because you'll see from a picture, you know, like, so by the time I got to him, you know what I mean, got to see him, it's like, all right, he already looking different, you know what I mean, since the last time I seen him. There's one person who saw him change up close, week after week. This is a guy who goes by King Benny. Small, skinny dude, you know. He ain't so skinny no more, you know what I'm saying? Benny grew up a few miles down the road from Midstate in Utica. He's a hip-hop producer. He'd worked with some guys from Queensbridge, and when P got locked up, one of them gave him a call. Uh, yeah, P the God. Go see the God. I'm like, all right, um, you sure? You know, like, <laughs> you just want to pop up? I'm all fucking, just, who the fuck is this dude? Oh, yeah, I heard of you type shit. So did you literally just, like, show up one weekend? Basically, yeah. That's just like, how this it started. What's up? I mean, first, you know, like, I'm trying to contain, you know, like my excitement right now. You know, you still got to be a man at the end of the day. You know, hey, what's going on? Yeah, King Benny. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the inside, like, yo, it's fucking prodigy right here. One on one, what's up? Did he know you were coming? See, he got there. There's a couple trips. I went up there and seen people, like, I'm looking at him. We both, neither one of us know who the fuck this person is. I just come with one fucking person came from Russia. I swear to God. Russia. Didn't speak English. Just sitting at the table. It was the funniest shit ever. Just at the table. But that just shows you how he touched people. That goes to show you. Somebody traveled from Russia just to see you. Benny would roll up weekend after weekend. He'd bring Prodigy little bits of gossip. He'd talk to him about Kendrick Lamar's latest mixtape. Sometimes he'd bring shoes for Prodigy to wear. Benny would just wear some new shoes to prison, swap with P while they were sitting across the table from each other. Once, Benny even brought his stepdaughter with him. She'd been diagnosed with diabetes as a kid. At the time, this was my girlfriend's daughter. She, like, we lived, you know what I mean? She lived with me. So I see what she she deals with, you know what I mean? The insulin shots, you know, having to take this shit daily, having to watch what she eat, you know? He told her, bring her up, you know what I mean? I want to talk to her. Hmm. So, you know, they had they talk. And... Benny drove her out one Saturday, introduced her to Prodigy. 
Then he left the table, let them talk, one-on-one, about how they coped. When I spoke to her, she told me Prodigy put her at peace. Yeah, she said thank you. She said thank you. It's a, it's a very big fucking void, man. It's a very big void with him gone. Aside from the music shit. When we started reporting about Prodigy, I began following his daughter, Tasia, on Instagram. She's 19 years old now. She's a photographer. I noticed that last year she put up this letter she got from him while he was in prison. It's written on the same yellow legal paper he was using to write his autobiography. He writes down all the normal dad stuff. He tells her to keep working hard in school and wear a scarf when she goes out in the cold. He tells her not to worry about him. He also writes a rhyme for her. He says it was inspired by a phone call they had. He'd asked her how she was doing, and she said, I'm happy for no reason. So that's what he called it. There used to be a time when I was mean-spirited and angry. Because sickle cell hurt so bad, I cursed the heavens daily. But then I came to understand the lifestyle I was living was causing me tremendous pain and misfortune was a given. The air is sweet and the taste of water even sweeter. And just to hear my daughter speak like this is a pain reliever. The day I got out, uh, I was real anxious, I know that. After three years inside, Prodigy was released on a cold March day. He actually walked through the prison gates and out into a snowstorm. After you get processed, they give you a package, whatever going home clothes you got. So I got my clothes, I changed into my street clothes that my family sent me. That felt good. I felt like I was closer to being out, being dressed regular. Years later, Prodigy still remembers exactly what he was wearing. It was like a pair of gray and black Bo Jacksons and some like blue jeans and like a button-up white shirt, and like a pullover cardigan. And then when I got out, a bunch of my friends was outside, a lot of my friends from Queensbridge, and just a bunch of my friends and family was waiting outside for me, about 10, 15 people. And he spent the whole drive back trying to figure out the touchscreen on his new phone. I was bugging over that. But it was like, it was something new that that wasn't there, that I never seen before. After he gets back to the city, he goes to his favorite Korean restaurant, and then he goes to meet up with 50 Cent. And remember, Prodigy was a dude who had made a career out of beefing with other rappers. But now he pulls 50 aside and he says, listen, I've had this realization while I was inside. I don't want to fight with rappers anymore. I want to squash all of my beefs. You name it, whoever it is, I'm squashing beef with them. I was like, honestly, I can't afford to be beefing with niggas. Like, you can beef with whoever you want to beef with. You got the bread, like, you know what I'm saying? I can't afford to be beefing with niggas. That's just fucking my money up. I started looking at life different when I was in jail. I started seeing the bigger picture. And then I bounced. I went straight to the studio. After I left 50's office, went straight to the studio. That first day out of prison, Prodigy stayed up all night making music, song after song after song, Tracks that he thought of while he was incarcerated. This dude was grinding, grinding so hard that he never actually left the studio. 
he started living there. When I had to come home, I had to parole to an address. So I paroled to the studio. And you're really not supposed to do that. You're supposed to parole to a place that has a bathroom, a shower, a kitchen. It has to be a home, a residence. So the studio is a commercial space. But it has a shower, has a bathroom, has a little makeshift uh, hot plate kitchen. You know, I was sleeping on the futon in the mic booth. So I told my parole, so I was like, yo, listen, I work every day doing music. The mm -hmm. best place for me to be is in the studio 24-7 for me to be doing my job. I was like, please let me parole here to this place. So he came, he looked at it, he said, all right, I'll let you parole here. And I just lived in the studio. I had a futon in the mic booth, and I just made songs 24 hours a day. And went right back to work, like I never left. In our final episode of The Realness, how he lost a hip-hop icon, Man, I just, I dropped the phone and I screamed, like, just screamed and screamed, no, 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 man, no, no, no. The Realness is a production of WNYC Studios, hosted by me, Christopher Johnson, and Mary Harris. Our editor is Christopher Wirth. We had help from consulting producer Kathy Yandley and associate producer Aaron Mathewson. Celia Muller makes sure we're legally in the right, and Michelle Harris is our fact checker. Jared Paul is our engineer. Casey Means is our technical director. Our team includes Merritt Jacob, Amanda Aronchik, and Audrey Quinn, along with Stephen Renault, Caitlin Sullivan, Ariana Jones, and Nikki Gautland. WNYC's Vice President of News is Jim Schachter. Thanks to WNYC's Assistant Program Director Stephen Smith for reading Prodigy's poem. And thanks to the Doing It Festival and Manimal Studio for the audio of Prodigy you heard at the top of the show. Trumpeter Christian Scott wrote our beautiful theme song and composed a lot of the music in this series. Additional music by Melanie Sue. Thanks to Pandora for sharing audio of Questlove Supreme. A heads up from them, you can stream their Sounds Like You concert online. That performance included a rendition of Mob Deep's Shook Ones Part 2 by Nas. It was recorded just a few weeks after Prodigy died. We also want to show love to Prodigy's friends and family who gave us their time, welcomed us into their homes, and shared their memories of a man they treasure. WNYC's health coverage and the realness is supported in part by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Jane and Gerald Catcher and the Catcher Family Foundation, Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. 